0: American agriculture is not broken. Our citizens enjoy the safest, most available, and cheapest in terms of percent of income, the cheapest food supply of any society in the history of the world. So let's start there. But that doesn't mean we don't have issues or problems. Uh, That does not mean we don't have to deal with resistant weeds, environmental issues, and so on. We need to continue continuous improvement. But that's been the story of American agriculture.
1: Welcome to CropTastic, the Interplant podcast, where your hosts, Shelly Aronov, Marta Bolayak, and Sean Yokomizo, explore the global future of agriculture and food. Carl Peterson, owner of Peterson Farms Seed Network in North Dakota and third generation farmer, joins us this week to bring a fresh farmer centric perspective to the conversation. And now here's Shelly.
2: Welcome to CropTastic, the podcast by Interplant. Our guest today is Carl Peterson. Carl is has been farming for at least three decades and is the owner of Peterson Seeds, a seed company located in uh, North Dakota, and I've had the pleasure to work with Carl for over two years now. He's got a huge depth of knowledge on everything farming uh, in North America, and specifically regarding soybeans, and Carl, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today.
0: Yeah, it's great to be here, a lot of fun.
2: So maybe we can start by sharing your background briefly and your story.
0: Sure. So I like to tell people I've lived in the same house my whole life and I've never had a job. And that's uh, technically true, although I you know, I did go off to college and, and live on campus uh, at Iowa State for three and a half years. I had to get out early because I was in a hurry. Uh, but came back, took over the family farm uh, and worked at that. And then um, my wife, Julie, and I kind of accidentally started a seed company about twenty five years ago, and have uh, been having fun with that ever since, uh, just trying to understand the industry, understand what our customers and farmers' needs are, and you know what technologies are are, are coming out. So we're heavily invested in learning about uh, new technologies, things that we can improve both on our farm and and for our customers generally.
2: Carla, you uh, what generation farmer are you?
0: I am the third generation farmer. Uh, my grandfather actually bought uh, the, the land that I live on in 1917.
2: Wow. So, from your perspective, since you've been farming for such a long time and even more so being involved from the seed perspective, you see a lot of acres. How has the industry evolved over the last 30
0: years, in your opinion? So, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary as a company. And so, you know, we're doing a fair bit of looking back at how things were. Uh, 25 years ago and, and beyond. And both in corn and soybeans, the revolution in genetics is is very dramatic. Uh, the improved genetics uh, from all the breeding efforts going on. And of course, the, the advent of traits uh, starting in the mid-90s and continuing on has changed a, a lot of the way we farm. And yet, in the end, it still comes back to basic agronomy. We've seen some difficult conditions this year in our region uh, with just with the uh, soil uh, moisture and emergence and some of those things. And and the basic agronomy has kind of come to the fore, getting getting the seed in the right spot, making sure that you uh, you know are doing things right. Uh, that still rules the roost.
2: It's all about the seeds. We nurture them, we protect them, we harvest them. Right? That's what I like to say all the time.
0: Well, I, I would tend to agree with that, but that might be that I'm in the seed business for you a little bit uh, self-interested. <laughs>
2: right, fair. Can you talk, I think what's interesting, I've learned a lot of this over the last few years, but I don't think a lot of people really understand it. Can you talk a little bit about the history of biotech seeds? And what were they about? How they're introduced? What was so exciting about them?
0: What works? What doesn't work? So in soybeans in particular, Roundup was the first biotech trait that came to the fore. And that was really revolutionary. On our farm, we were losing the battle against weeds with other technologies. We had some fields that we were probably about one rotation away from saying we're going to have to not grow soybeans there uh, just because the broad the spectrum of weeds had broadened and uh, and we were already at that point dealing with some weed resistance to those chemistries. A lot of people think that's something that showed up around it, but weed resistance has been around for 50 years. And that enabled us to have clean fields by spraying when it worked for us rather than having to basically live in the sprayer. Uh, it helped farmers scale uh, even a little bit more. And it really, really uh, was a, a wow technology. So that was kind of the first step with that. And, and of course, the producers of Roundup said there will never be weed resistance uh, to Roundup. But, of course, we know that uh, that's not true. And we're seeing more more and more weeds resistant all the time, which which has forced us to switch to other technologies. First, the Liberty and then uh, to some D products. And so on and so forth. What I think is not well understood outside of the agriculture community is that that part of the equation is not really new, right? We were were doing that previous roundup as well. We'd have a chemistry package that worked well for the weeds. We would use that for a few years. And then with weed chips and resistances, we had to look for something else. What has changed is the well is kind of going dry of new herbicide modes of action. Uh, Used to be we'd get one or two. Correctly every year, but now there hasn't been a new uh, mode of action for uh, at least a couple of decades.
2: Do you think there's going to be more?
0: More uh, new modes of action? I do think there will be some. I think there's probably other technologies, you know, whether that be some RNAi things or, um, you know, who knows uh, what might come along. Mechanical robots. or Sand spray. uh, You know, the one thing that we know is there'll be new innovative technologies. And we know from past histories that farmers will be very quick to adopt those uh, which fit uh, both, uh, both culturally and economically.
2: Yeah, that's um, I hear that so often. Farmers don't adopt technology. That is so not true. Farmers don't adopt technologies that are not valuable to them or mispriced, but that's a different thing. Uh, things that have value tend to get a lot of attention.
0: Yeah, farmers are very quick to adopt new technologies Uh, You know, just as an example of that, uh, self-driving or GPS-guided tractors came out, I don't remember the exact year, but the first year that they were available, I talked to a lot of farmers who said, I just don't see that the economics of that. And within two years, it became perfectly evident that the economics were very good and everybody had switched, virtually everybody, uh, to GPS-guided machinery.
2: Right. And the biotech story is very similar with seeds. it. This massive adoption when the value is there. Absolutely. From your experience servicing your customers and from your knowledge in the industry, what do you think are the biggest pain points for farmers today?
0: One of the biggest pain points for farmers has always been the innate variability of what they're doing, right? You you know, you can have 50% yields, average yields one year and 150% the next year. And the economics really don't consider that. I mean, when you look at input costs and so on and so forth, they're sort of geared towards a high average. Um, and, you know, when you get those years and, and then of course, commodity price swings as well. And I think that those aren't unique. Those always have been and, and always will be. I do think that on the horizon, a more onerous environmental regulation, uh, some of it good, some of it may be a little questionable are going to be a, a bigger issue for farmers. And then also we talked about not not getting new modes of action, some of the technologies running out or not keeping up with the needs, I think is a serious problem.
2: Right. There's always the need for the next best thing, or maybe there's just a need for a new system in place.
0: Right. So, you know, and, and one of the hot buttons, you know, today agriculture is sustainable, right? And, you know, people say, well, you know, whatever, not sustainable. <laughs> and in common use today, sustainable practices tends to mean things I like, right? And unsustainable means things I don't like. And to say that agriculture currently is sustainable, isn't really the right question in my view. The question is, is it on a sustainable path? Because as we see new challenges, we adapt. And and that's ever been that way. That doesn't mean we don't have problems, but the answer is we don't just abandon what we know and what has worked and, and move on. We have to deal with the issues as they come. And if you consider sustainability as can we uh, maintain our productivity uh, indefinitely, I think, again, sustainable path. I mean, if you look back 50 years, we've had increasing production. Uh, We have reduced the inputs per unit of production. We've reduced the environmental impact. All those things look pretty sustainable to me as part of that process of improvement. We can't stay static, Uh, But I think we I think agriculture is on a sustainable path.
2: I think that that definitely brings up a a point that I wanted to talk about, the sustainability aspect of it. Because farming is more sustainable. And this is something we touched about with the episode last week, how going from very small scale in the situation in China today to larger scale, there's just a direct linear correlation between that growth and reduction in chemicals and increased yields. But but there's the whole topic of the perception. And honestly, what gets me is that there's no definition of sustainability right you you just use sustainability around can we continue to grow food and continue to maintain the yield there's the whole aspect of soil health there is uh, what do we do around the, the chemistry and is the system sustainable if we continuously have more resistances we need your chemistry the chemistry doesn't come how does one think about all of that right it's just so complicated without a simple definition
0: well, and I think that's not intentional in in a conspiratorial way, but I think it's it's used to further the interests of the individual who's using the, the the language, right? So I mean I put it this way. I, I've been farming for more than 40 years. I would be considered a traditional commercial farmer, right? We produce more per acre than we ever have. We use when when I look back on the environmental things that we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, I'm a little bit appalled you know, those (laughs) those things have improved uh, just tremendously. We use less fertilizer per unit of output. We have less soil soil erosion than ever. And when we talk about soil health, you know, that's another sort of fun, you know, squishy term, right? But the fact of the matter is my soil is in better shape today than it ever has been. And I'm pretty proud of that progress. This is not like, you know, this isn't just the business enterprise. This is pretty close to my heart. And it is the most farmers, but we're also eager to improve what we're doing, right? And there's a lot of interesting and cool things. And Interplan is one of those interesting and cool things that could be hugely valuable in improving what we're doing.
2: And how would you, so how do you bridge the divide? And, and part of it, by the way, I think is a lot of, not necessarily misinformation, but just not enough of information uh, for the public. Not a lot of knowledge about what happens in farming. And not enough connection between the people that grow the food and the people that consume the food. If you had to solve this problem, Carl, what would you do? How would you go at it?
0: I think, personally, the first thing we need to do is, is have a back up and take a look at what is the size of the problem, right? One of the things we hear a lot of is consumers are more and more interested in where their food comes from and how it's produced. And, and, and that's, that's a true statement as far as it goes, right? But... If you go to the grocery store, go to a supermarket and just stand there and watch the people coming in and buying food, right? I've done this and, and go, okay, how many of those people are reading the labels and checking all of this, uh, you know, what are the ingredients? Are they looking for the non-GMO thing or the organic sticker? And it's like, okay, some of them are, but most of the people are like, hey, I'm on my way home from work and I got to find some things for my family to eat. I want things that they're going to like, things that I can afford and so on and so forth. And they're trying to get in and out as fast as they can, right? So that's the majority of people who are, yeah, of course, they're interested in having safe food, but they're not focused on it in, in, you know, sort of an obsessive way. And then you do have other people who are, they're looking for those labels and so on and so forth. And And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think in the press and sometimes even in agriculture organizations, we put a little more attention on that second group than maybe is merited doesn't mean we don't have to deal with those things. We do, but I don't think we want to let the tail lag the dog.
2: I agree. I mean, I obviously agree. I'm a huge advocate of genetic engineering. Um, I think when it comes to chemistry, that is something that we can move towards more natural, different solutions because we have the tools now. We have the capabilities to do that. Um, and, and I think that's a, that needs to be decoupled. Just in general, genetic engineering and chemistry is not the same thing.
0: Right. And so, you know, Jay Leno used to do these things where he would ask people like kind of silly questions and get silly answers, right?
2: Is this the so, DNA?
0: Yeah. Do you, are, yeah. You about, <laughs> are you worried about genes in your food, right? And a huge portion of people are like, yeah, I don't want genes in my food. Well, okay. We're starting from a fairly low base here if we're going to uh, try to educate at a high level. Um so I think what we need to just make sure that people understand is these technologies are safe, and to me that's the message. And if you look at GMO technologies, I mean, we've had you know 30 years of experience with these products in the marketplace, and they have proven to be safe. Now, within certain, you need to have safety guidelines, and you need to have testing and make sure that we're not putting allergens to the food supply and those kind of things. But the system has been working.
2: One. When- I wanted to talk to you about the future, but before that, something that uh, came to mind. What do you think about carbon markets and carbon sequestration?
0: Well, first of all, I think it's clear that the planet has been warming. I think it's clear that that human activity is part of that. So there was an article in Successful Farming magazine here a couple of weeks ago where they said that um, if American farmers did, you know, and I'm not talking about livestock, I'm talking about grain farmers, did everything correctly. They could reduce uh, U.S. carbon emissions by 5%. Okay, so that's a big deal. That's a big number, right? That's kind of impressive. You'd say, well, okay, that that sounds great. No consideration of cost in that, right? But then here's the other part of that. The U.S. is about 11%, uh, last figures I've seen, of the world's carbon emissions, so if you reduce that by five percent, now we're talking about half a percent of worldwide emissions, and you know that's wiped out in one or two days by the new coal plants coming up online uh, in Asia. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it does mean that we need to take a, a look at two things: what's the cost benefit to this, and you know how much effect is this actually going to have? Uh, article in today's, I think it was in the uh, New York Times about. How uh, uh, thermal coal uh, is at high prices because demand in particularly China is outstripping supply. So if we're doing a lot of expensive things in the U.S. to reduce our footprint, those are wiped out. But what happens in other countries? I'm not sure. It might, it might not be our best path.
2: But what do you think about how are we doing on solar carbon?
0: Um, I'm not sure really how you would quantify that, right? You know, reduced tillage leaves more residue on the soil. No-till leaves more residue on the soil, but at some point you reach equilibrium, right? Uh, when you, if you're in growing no-till corn, and you do that for 20 years, you don't end up with four feet of corn stalks on the on the field. Uh, eventually, you reach equilibrium, and and additional sequestration, excuse me, sequestration from that activity uh, becomes pretty minimal, right? So. Uh, you know I think we need to consider how do we how we how would how do we reduce on un, unnecessary energy use? How can we reduce trips across the field? How can we leave more residue on the soil? But I think we need to do that in the context of what makes agronomic and economic and environmental sense rather than just focus on one.
2: yeah, and that's why I like talking to you. I think it's very clear none of these topics are simple. Everything's cyclical. It's all about marginal improvements. and uh, the science, everything is just really complicated. So we're always looking for simple solutions and simple questions, but it doesn't really work that way because it's a very complex environment.
0: Absolutely, and 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 we're working at at the margins, right? So when my father was in his mid career, uh, you know, they had, hey, we got this new thing we should start to use in farming. It's, it's called fertilizer, right? So when they went from not applying much fertilizer to applying more substantial rates. I and mean, there were differences you could see driving by in a pickup at 60 miles an hour right but those kind of improvements are probably I mean, there might be something common that we don't know about but those are those are not common those are gone and now we're dealing with smaller incremental improvements that are still very important but they're not quite as dramatic so they are harder to make growers understand as well
1: i'm i'm yes. sorry i, I just had a, a, an idea part question pop into my head for, for carl because i loved the the kind of sobering farmer centric answers that you gave earlier in the podcast. And that kind of uh, pulled a question that you were kind of responded to before we got on to the recording that you probably wouldn't agree with one of the previous guests who said that farming is broken and that, uh, you know, and so I I guess that's super interesting just hearing your perspective of like how well it's going. And so I would guess straight away, I would ask, I think you've kind of spoken to that, but like um, in terms of, is there anything that's broken or is it all about improvement? And then
0: what would, what would that look like? I would just be fascinated from your point of view to hear that. Sure. So, you know, people who are selling something are prone to making bold statements, right? And, and whether that's an idea that they're selling or a product, it's the same, right? So the concept that American agriculture is broken is is out there quite a bit. And the fact of the matter is American agriculture is not broken. Our citizens enjoy the safest, most available, and cheapest in terms of income, food supply of any society in the history of the world. Think about that. That's incredible. So let's start there, but that doesn't mean we don't have issues, it doesn't mean we don't have problems, that doesn't mean we don't need to deal with resistant weeds, environmental issues, and so on, we need to continue continuous program improvement, but that has been the story of agriculture uh, really forever
1: but there was also a statement that you've made. I think I read it in an interview you, you might've done where you talked about being a star Trek fan. And, and we and I thought that was really interesting because you were viewing agriculture, which you've been doing for 40 years through the eyes of a star Trek fan. And I, so you, I would love to hear your, when you talk about the improvements uh, that agriculture is looking for, just based on your, I mean, your vast history, your four, four decades is a tremendous amount of time you'd be involved in an industry. So when you look forward through the lens of Star Trek, what do you see maybe in, I don't know, like 10 years, certainly, but maybe in, in another 40 years, would you be bold enough to look forward that far? And what would you like to see? And what do you think is realistic to
0: see? Sure. Well, the Star Trek reference, and and I think they did this in all of them, but, you know, they would pull up to a planet and Mr. Spock would say, well, we're registering uh, 97% oxygen or whatever the, you know, break it down just by scanning it the planet, right? And that's kind of what interplant is about, right? To, to at a distance scan uh, and see what you can see and what, you know, is there, are there diseases, are there insects, those kind of things out there. And there's two basic paradigms for that. Uh, one is we're going to put sensors everywhere, uh, you know, and, and monitor soil nitrogen or plant health in some fashion. And, you know, we've, we've tried a lot of those kinds of things. The other is, and it's a much more elegant solution, but it may be a little more difficult to get to, and that is using the plant as a sensor, which is part of the implant's, uh, you know, main thrust. A much more elegant solution when you can, you have coverage over all of the area, not a specific uh, a place. So I don't think there's any question that we'll have more remote sensing, and probably both with sensors and using the sensor as a plant or the plant as a sensor for nitrogen management, disease management, uh, those kinds of things. And then, you know, mechanically, there's a couple of different paradigms. Uh, Fent, I believe it is, has, has uh, developed a little single row planting robot that, you know, you can lease a herd of these things out in the field and they can go uh, out and plant your crop. That's a paradigm of smaller autonomous vehicles doing the, and, and that's pretty interesting, it might happen that's counter to the trends of the last, I don't know, 10,000 years or so, where farmers are getting larger implements and being able to cover more ground that way, right? You know, we talked about briefly about scale earlier, and and I like to say, you know, scale in agriculture has been a continuous increase for thousands of years, ever since somebody, you know, strapped a deer antler, and it was probably some woman out in the fields and. And Africa, Asia, to strapped a deer antler onto a stick and discovered they could hoe way more acres that way than they could by bending over and pulling the weeds. And ever since then, you know, we've been scaling uh, agriculture. I'm not sure which of those paradigms is going to win out. It probably will be some of each. Uh, I know that it's going to be exciting to watch.
2: It's a, It's an ecosystem approach. By the way, I think that was my my question, my next question, which is what do you think the farm of the future will look like twenty years from now, but maybe you just answer that
0: well and I don't think we can know the answer to that question uh, really, and that's why as a as an agribusiness person and as a as a farmer uh you know we have to keep our eyes open and be prepared to make those shifts uh, as they as they come along uh, but I think it's likely that uh, at some level the scale of agriculture will be greater than it is today uh, i think that we will be using fewer chemicals and fewer fertilizers per unit of production i think we will be using biologicals widely uh, in agriculture uh, either as some in some cases as fertilizer replacements or as uh, you know plant health or or disease management or perhaps even weed management uh, strategies you know, uh, when it's uh, so that Henry Ford said if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse because nobody could anticipate really what's possible.
1: That's a great reference.
0: Let me, so let me switch gears
1: from Star Trek to Harry Potter <laughs> because we would talk about the future of agriculture, but it, you know, when you're talking about the, the historical reference or sort of practice of agriculture, particularly in your career, if you and, you and what you're seeing now and moving towards the future, if you had a magic wand, um, is, is there something, would you change something about agriculture the way we're practicing now, like fixing a particular problem or fixing something that maybe isn't broken, but that you see that could be glaringly improved? Or, um, you know, is it
0: just about getting better? I mean, if you've had that magic wand, what would you what would you do with agriculture? So that's an interesting question. I must confess, I've never spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I would change of the things that I can't change. If that makes sense, um, that's very pragmatic. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I'd have to think about that a little bit. One of the things that so I'm I, I'm a I'm a bit of a well, I'm a nerd generally, but I'm also a bit of an agronomy nerd. And one of the things that um, I find frustrating today is that. We have not found ways to present good, solid agronomy information to farmers in a way that is compelling to them, at least, you know, not as compelling as a new tractor. I'm not knocking the farmers for this. I'm knocking our industry because, you know, we seem to bore our customers when we start talking about root diseases and, you know, cysts and, um, you know, fungicides and all those kind of things. What they really are looking for is something a little simpler than that.
2: Well, Carl, I think that was uh that was a great episode. And thank you for sharing your perspective and your vast experience um, both as a farmer and working with all of your customers who farm. It was it was really lovely to have you here and looking forward to continue to work with you.
0: Yeah, I, I, I had great fun. <laughs> thank you, Carl. Great having you on the show. Alrighty. Well, best of luck.
1: And that's croptastic for this episode. Thank you again to Carl Peterson for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter account at inner underscore plant. Thanks for listening.